Uh, this reading does come from Matthew chapter 1, the beginning of the Gospels, the beginning of the New Testament. The genealogy of Jesus. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. So Rob drew short straws to have to read that passage. It's hard to believe that it's almost Christmas time. The season of Advent, four more Sundays before we remember the birth of Christ on January 25th is here. Now, the word for this Advent at North Point is the word disruptive. In fact, it's two words. It's disruptive grace. We are looking at what is disruptive, disruptive grace. And we are looking at the incarnation today, the announcement of Jesus' disruption of history, how it turns history or the world upside down, and it turns our own personal histories, our own personal worlds upside down. Now, I want you to think back to a period of disruption in your life. I can think back to an hour ago when they told me that I was going to be preaching Kyle's sermon. I'm sure Kyle remembers back to yesterday afternoon when a piece of dust fell in his eye and he scratched his cornea. And at the moment he can't read, which is why 
I'm standing before you today reading his sermon. But I'm sure you can think of other disruptions in your life. If you break a bone or you get a tooth abscess, these things which change your trajectory, they set you on a different path unexpectedly. But let's zoom out for a minute. Let's step back. And I wonder if you were telling the story of history, of civilization, of human history, what events would be significant to you? What would you include in that? Would you talk about the rise and fall of the Roman Empire? Would you talk about the discovery of the microphone and its significance in medicine? Uh, what about the movement towards cities, the Industrial Revolution, or the invention of trains, planes, and automobiles? What would you, in your book on history, include? There's a book at the moment that's out called, literally, History Disrupted. And that's actually a book about the invention of the internet. We live in the so-called digital age or the information age. And according to the telling of this book, the world that the internet created, and I think it's true, is very disruptive. It, it shifts. There's a big disruptive shift that happens, a cosmic shift in power and wealth and access to news and information. The information age has changed a lot. It's been very disruptive. But I wonder where, for you, the birth of Christ fits into the story of our civilization. How disruptive is that to you? How disruptive is that to history when compared to the internet? <clears throat> we find ourselves on this first Sunday of Advent being called to examine this question. Examine, in fact, as we talked when we lit the candle, this journey towards hope, asking the question, what is the shape of our hope? What is the trajectory of our hope? What is the future promise of our hope? Now, some things in the past hundred years of human, human history that have tried to sell us hope to our hearts, sell us a story of progress, sell us a story that history is going somewhere, jump to mind. If you, uh, if you looked at the moment of promise in the history in the past, you would see the Industrial Revolution as one of the things that we sought to harness the power of engineering to lighten the yoke of our toil and to make our worlds easier. Now, how's that going? How many of you are working less hours now that we have lights to work in the evenings, cars to, to get involved in busy commutes? Or in the rise of Western medicine, we sought to slay the terror of our diseases like dragons. COVID, RSV. Some progress, maybe, but there's still many terrifying beasts and illnesses out there that we're scared of, that we're rightfully afraid can harm us. What about the rise of digital technology in the area of the internet, where we sought to make a new world that was deeply connected and ever accessible? How's that going? Does the world seem deeply and emotionally connected to you? Or does it seem lonely and disconnected and fragmented? How are these promises of history playing out? Now, if there's a story underneath all these things, which the peddlers of hope are really trying to sell us, it's that life is getting easier, that we're living longer, and that we have everything we need at our fingertips. We're on this positive tra trajectory. Now, there's truth to this 
in one sense. There's a truth to the goodness of this, but we also manage to find a dark underbelly. In all of these uh, areas of progress, somehow humanity tr seems to be able to flip it over and find a pussy-infected soul that we can use to corrupt that progress. Now, most people are cynical of stories of linear progress and overly optimistic futures. If the pandemic or the mental health crisis that we're in, the, we're in at the moment has taught us something, it's that we're either not farther along in this trajectory or the story of progress is perhaps cyclical and that we're never actually going to achieve our dreams. Some of us have even been dulled by shallow hopes. We allow ourselves to be dulled by shallow hopes so that we can protect ourselves from the fear of hopelessness. And that's a question worth asking ourselves today. Do you substitute shallow hopes to protect yourself from the fear of hopelessness? You know, perhaps we're tempted to buy into the hope of the escape of Christmas, of the Christmas season, a day where the world stops long enough that we can truly enjoy our families. Surely we can buy them gifts to show them how much we love them, and this can erase the pain and make up for how hard the past few years have been. People try to sell all sorts of things, and underneath every marketing scheme is a vision of hope that things will improve, the problems will get solved, and then we'll have all our answers, and that we'll live happily ever after. Now, the gospel disrupts history in a way that challenges most, if not all, of these minor shallow hope narratives. And it's something that should make us sceptical. Not of the small hopes themselves, because these hopes do fit within God's story of ultimate redemption, but sceptical of the sufficiency of any political program or any product or any person who claims to be the ultimate answer. And that's radical, right? We learn somehow to minimize, to dumb down, to avoid, to rationalize. Our tendency is to write Jesus out of the story of civilization, merely reducing him to the founder of Christianity. But Jesus makes radical claims. Radical claims of disruptive grace, Claims that are so much bigger than the way we diminish him. When Jesus comes, comes as a baby, heaven meets earth in disruptive union. Let me say that again. When Jesus comes as a baby, heaven meets earth in disruptive union. Jesus is able to take our afflictions, heal our diseases, and will one day give us new bodies. Isn't this the claim of medicine? Jesus will fulfill all our hopes for connection and knowledge, uniting us with himself and with God. Isn't this the claim of the digital age? Isn't this better than just being friends on Facebook? Jesus' incarnation disrupts Israel's hope for a Messiah by coming a different sort of Messiah. We're going to look at three ways he does this. The disruption of smallness, the disruption of unpretentiousness, and the disruption of God himself. So let's start with the smallest, this idea of smallness. One of the most fundamental ways 
that Jesus' entry into history, disrupts history, is, uh, could be said of the whole Bible, really. Jesus was Jewish, and God chose us, the Jews, chose to use the Jews to reveal himself to the world. Unlike the task that I asked you to imagine earlier at the beginning of this sermon, choosing the most significant events of human civilization, in the Bible, God tells his own story of significance. So the point here is that it's God that defines what's significant and why. Things are set on a cosmic scale and reality transcends the material world that we can see or touch or smell. Jesus' birth and his genealogy take place within time and within a context that is told by God to us, not by us. When we start off the genealogy, we start off by reading two names that if you'd been in church for a while, you'll have heard them before. The names King David and Abraham. And Abraham is the one that God initially spoke to uh, to set up a covenant with his own people, to set up a group of people that are for him. And we read about Abraham in Genesis uh, 12. And David, of course, was the great king of Israel. They're two important figures in the history of Israel. But when you scale out and look at history, as we understand it in human terms, they're pretty unimpressive and unimportant. Unless you went to a Christian school, it's very unlikely that in a history class you learn about Abraham or King David. They're just not that big on the world stage. Not they didn't, their, their introduction to history didn't go off with a bang. The reason they were disruptive is because, given the extent of the claims of the gospel, to save anyone who believes, their entry into history is really quite small. It's quite insignificant. Abraham was a wandering shepherd, too afraid to tell Pharaoh that Sarah was his wife, that his wife was his wife. And David was a king in a small scattered collection of, of towns and villages. These people are only significant to the Jews as figures of prominence within the history that God has given them. Now Jesus' story is set firmly in the history of Israel. And as far as ancient civilizations go, Israel is not very notable. For the civilizations of great wealth, power and ingenuity, Israel is just a footnote in the book of history. Jesus was born during the rise of superpowers in the ancient Near East, of Babylon, Assyria, uh, ancient Greece, the Seleucid Empire, Rome. These superpowers actually, from time to time, subjugated Israel. The fact that God ended history in a way that could be missed by historians in the area of great, greater world power and historical significance is incredibly disruptive. By comparisons of significance, if Jesus was alive today, he'd probably be Nepalese or Somalian. Jesus sneaks onto the scene. And so in the smallness, he disrupts history. And not just in the smallness, also in the unprestigiousness the second way Jesus' genealogy disrupts history is that it's so unprestigious. Let's face it, 
For someone in the ancient world seeking to make a name for themselves, grounding their significance in their lineage is the way you did it. The genealogy is basically the ancient resume. Now today, when you write your resume, you go and get all the best bits, all your achievements, you brush them up, you polish them, you make them look as good as you possibly can. You leave out anything that was slightly, you know, uncharacteristically bad or, or unhelpful in your history. And you create this picture of yourself based on a resume. In the same way, the ancient figures selectively added or removed people from the gene their genealogies as well. King Herod, for example, manipulated claims that he was her, uh, the descendant from a king of Judah, when in fact, he was descended from a king that was an enemy of Judah. In this day, in that day and age, women weren't put on gene genealogies. Women were not considered significant enough. And still in this genealogy, we see Mary included as the mother of Jesus. And it says nothing about Joseph the father, only that Joseph was the husband of Mary. Not only are women included in the genealogy, but most of the women are Gentiles, racial outsiders for the Jews, Canaanites, Moabites, Hittites. And not only are they individuals, they're individuals on Jesus' genealogy of non-Jewish heritage, there are also people guilty of significant crimes or cultural missteps. Verses 3 mentions Tamar, tricked by Jesus, uh, trick, who tricked Judah to become pregnant with child. In fact, this genealogy mentions both illegitimate children and not just the one in the line. Ruth acted similarly to Tamar when she laid at Boaz's feet and Rahab was a prostitute. David is generally someone you want to put on your resume. He was a king, he was a man. God promised to make his kingdom an eternal kingdom. But we don't see great king of Judah, wonderful king who did everything right on the resume, on the genealogy. What we read is that Solomon is the son of David by the wife of Uriah, a child of adultery. This black spot is preserved on the resume, on the genealogy, because it's incredibly disruptive. This unprestigious genealogy, it's not meant to bolster the significance of Jesus's line. Imagine a presidential residence a resume that read, well, when I was 16, I mowed my neighbor's lawn, then I beat up his kids and stole his lawnmower. That's about the quality of the resume in this genealogy. It's not meant to bolster the significance of Jesus' line. It's intended to set the stage for his work instead. Both non-Jews and sinners alike were excluded from the presence of God. Both clearly needed a source from outside themselves to help them enter the presence of God, who made himself known to the Jews and who said, those with clean hands and pure hearts may ascend the hill of the Lord. And of course, everyone reading this genealogy knows they don't fit that. Even the genealogy itself shows us people that doesn't fit that. Jesus' genealogy is full of people who need a saviour. It's not the resume that makes the man in this case. It's the man that saves the resume. Jesus came as a saviour to sinner. He came not just to the elite or the qualified. He came to those 
who know that they are broken and who fall on him for mercy. So when we think of Jesus coming onto the scene, Matthew wants us to do it, do so in light of the entire history of Israel. The first challenge, the first disruption of this passage is that hope is historically situated in the people of Israel. Why? They're so insignificant, so nondescript. And the second challenge, the second disruption in this passage, is that hope comes in a person who ended in so unprestigiously, so messily. Matthew's genealogy is a stark indication that God's plan is not always accomplished through pious people, but through passionate and thoroughly disreputable people. Jesus did not belong to a nice, clean world of middle-class respectability, but rather he belonged to a family of murderers and cheats and cowards and liars and adulterers. He sort of belonged to our family, if we're honest, with ourselves. He belongs to us and he came to help us. And it's not really a surprise that it came to such a bad ending. But ultimately, it was the ending that brings us real hope. So then we look then at this idea of the insignificance of Israel and the unpretentiousness of Jesus. Let's look at the disruptiveness of God breaking in here. Most fundamentally, we have to deal with the reality that God is a disruptive God. But that's not really saying much about God. It's saying much more about us. Usually when we think about disruptiveness, we think of a student who disrupts a lecture, or we think of uh, somebody who interrupts at a party, or is annoying, or getting in the way, or derailing us from a good and solid purpose. The fact is, there is no greater context or purpose than God's purpose. So how can we call anything that does, God does a disruption? The fact that we go about our lives ignoring God, trying to usurp God, trying to write God out of our lives, trying to hide from God, and we need to be disrupted, says so much more about us than it says about God. We are broken people. Our hearts are prone to wander. The truth is, God is the creator of this world. We are his subjects and we are his children, and we flourish under his wing. But that's not where we stay. When we talk about the arc of history, Jesus sits at the beginning and at the end of it. The fact that anything that God does might be considered disruptive just shows how far humans can stray from reality, how prone we are to self-deception. But it's also true that in order to return to God's purposes, we need something to radically wake us up, to shake us, to disrupt us. History shows us that God, although he is all-powerful, does not need to seize power or defeat his enemies through violent means. He can love his enemies and those who do wrong. It shows that though God is all-knowing, he does not need to showcase his brilliance, but instead he uses the foolishness to confound the wise, the foolishness of the cross to confound the wise. 
Everything about God is disruptive because it is us who have chosen to tell a different story that's off the rails. We are the ones who find ourselves within different cultural narratives to the story of redemptive history. We miss the grand narrative of all history because we're consumed with our own tiny self-absorbed histories. How easy it is at this time of year to buy into the cultural narrative that stuff buys happiness. Christians, where is your hope? Christians, where is your hope? Let's not go so far as to decry the spirit of giving in this time of year, but for the sake of... Uh, but, but let's also acknowledge that we become so exhausted and tired in the mindless trap sometimes of Christmas, of getting and giving, receiving, and we do it sometimes for the sake of obligation or the sake of tradition and the sake of meeting other people's expectations. Why not in this season of Advent give away your disruptive, uh, give in disruptive, unexpected ways? Why not in this season of Advent get to know God who disrupts our place in time and culture to tell us that we need a saviour? God is disruptive, but in that disruptiveness we, we find a God who refuses to be anything else but God. God's story is truer than any of the stories that we can tell ourselves about civilization or progress or a bright and hopeful future. Let's, this Advent, get back to the grand narrative of all history, the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus entering into this world. The hope that we have is in Christ. It's in the God who was born as a baby in an animal trough, the God who is both king and servant, it is the God who makes a way for redemption and for in everybody who calls upon his name. Now, as I move to conclude, I want you to consider whether your hope, the hope that's planted in your heart, is big enough. Is it big enough? Which narrative is your hope wrapped up in? It is often that the things that we want or settle for wanting, uh, they're just constellations of big hopes that we've been shaped by fear of disappointment to avoid. Now let me say that again, because it's so important to hear that. Often, the things that we want or settle for wanting, the hopes of those things, are consolations for the big hopes that we have been shaped by fear of disappointment to avoid. I think that this time of year, while we're putting together wish lists for ourselves and others, we can often find ourselves satisfied in these very shallow stories. One of the gifts of Advent is that it asks us to ponder anew the incarnation, an impossibility where the Creator becomes born into creation. This was a disruption we never asked for and perhaps it represents a hope greater than many of us thought was even possible. For us to be called children of God is radical absurdity. And yet that's the heart of the gospel. Sinners are offered new life within God 
through Christ. We're invited to hope for even greater things, for everything any commercial can ever promise and more. We're invited to want these things, not just for ourselves and our families, but for the whole world. That's what God proved he wanted through Christ. Not a great distance from creation, but a great communion with creation. If you and your family had to turn off the lights for the entire month of December and only use candles, and, that, and through that it led to a better apprehension of the hope we have in Christ as the one who lights the world, that would be a small price to pay, that disruption, for a hope that can conform to the gift of his incarnation. It's better than any industrial progress. The hope of Christ is not less than, but it's certainly more than any healthcare progress. It is not less than, but it is certainly more than the proliferation of powerful technology. It is not less than, but it is certainly more than the deepest hopes that shape us in our cultural narratives. It is the meaning of heaven and earth. It is the union of God and man. Let's, this Advent, let the shape of our journey to Christmas be one that's shaped by the disruptive hope of Jesus who came and made union between heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father, you, in this season, ask us to be disrupted. And you broke into history in such a disruptive way. And you say to us, I'm going to keep disrupting you. I'm going to keep interrupting you. I'm going to keep dragging you back to the only narrative that matters, to my story. I'm going to keep showing up the smallness and the pettiness of the hopes that you build in your own fragile narratives. And I'm going to keep pointing out to you the gloriousness of the hope that you find in your narrative when it's that we find in our own narratives when they're part of your big story you are calling us to a hope that's so much bigger than the hopes we can make for ourselves either individually or collectively as part of culture and help us father as a church and as a people to constantly on this journey through advent remind each other of the significance of that the disruptiveness of that the impact of that. Help us be called through your disruption back to the true story of who you are and who we are in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.